This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. We're going to talk on the show today about that raucous house party on Saturday night in Anmore of all places limos lamborghinis choppers landing in the backyard booze drugs this thing was out of control the mayor will be on the show a little later today he is not happy with this rager that took place in his community on saturday night this thing was uh, heavily documented on social media of course if you go on uh, Instagram and sites like that, you'll see lots of photos of this party, all the Lamborghinis, the other kind of James Bond class supercars. There was one uh, post on social media I was checking out that kind of did a tally of how much booze and was consumed at this thing. 1,700 beers, 526 ounces of whiskey, 333 people at this party, according to this post. Seven Lamborghinis and other supercars. Three helicopters. What is this? This is crazy. A fire truck, SWAT team out there, a couple of ambulances, the cops showing up. This is wild. I mean, this is out of control. Who are these people? And are they going to throw another one next weekend? We're going to talk about that on the show today. So here's your hot question of the day. Following the party in Anmore with 300 plus attendees and a helicopter in the backyard, should bylaws governing short-term rentals in the area be changed? Would you say yes, that this kind of party should not happen? Or would you say no? Come on, this is just a one-off little party in the neighborhood. What's the big deal? At CKNW on Twitter is where you can vote on that today. At CKNW on Twitter. Please follow me while you are there. Mike Smith News on Twitter. S-M-Y-T-H at Mike Smith News on Twitter. Call me on the buzz line. 604-331-BUZZ. 604-331-2899. Let's talk about the state of taxi services around Metro Vancouver and whether it's time for ride hailing finally in metro and if we're ever going to get it what is the deal with taxis in coquitlam here we go again with another horror story uh from coquitlam you remember that story last year where that senior citizen that elderly lady waited for hours in the rain for a taxi that was in coquitlam bel-air taxi that was last year. You remember the mayor there, Richard Stewart, putting that one on the public radar. Here we go again now. This is another one where the mayor has highlighted this one with, once again, another disabled woman uh, saying, same taxi company, Bel Air Taxi, saying that she uh, called this taxi to uh, take her to her job at an elementary school. She says the driver failed to turn on the meter when she pointed that out to him. She was a little suspicious about that. Things got a little weird. Her name is Gail Hunter. Here she is speaking to Global News. So this one day I call my cab. You know, I get it online, get the cab to come, and he arrives. And I tell him we're going up to Birchland School, which is just up the road. Yeah. And almost at the school, he says to me, I didn't put on the fare thing. 
and uh, I've had this incident many times that they don't put on the fair. So I had phoned prior to this about a month or so ago to their manager and said, you know, what do you do when they don't put on the fair and then they say, well, you have to pay X amount of dollars, but it's more than normally the fair that they say. And he said, Gail, technically you don't have to pay for it, right? You don't, you know, you only pay for what's on the, the fair thing. They don't put it on, you don't pay. Well, I'm not going to ever not pay. I just don't feel right about that, mm -hmm. okay? So on this day, though, I said to the cab driver, well, technically, if you don't have the fair thing on, I don't have to pay, but as far as I got, he started yelling at me. Okay, Hunter says that's when the driver became confrontational. Here she is. Turn around. Now, take me back to the school. And he's saying, no, no, I can take you anywhere. I can take you home. I said, you're not taking me home. You're not taking me. Now, he's not even going the direction of my house. He's going in the opposite direction. And I said, turn around now. And I said, I'm phoning your manager, so I don't. And I explained, you know, he's taking me in the opposite direction. He's not taking me to the school. He's still yelling. He's still mad. And I'm saying, why is he going to do this? And he said, oh, he's just running the fair. And I said, no, you know, that's not okay. He needs to turn around and take me back to where I need to go. And he goes, yeah, he is. Okay, as Gail Hunter talking about her taxi trip from hell in Coquitlam. Now, the taxi company involved here, Bel Air Taxi, has apologized to the woman. They say that things didn't go precisely as, as she describes it, but they did apologize to her. A lot of this one being put on the public radar by the mayor out there, Richard Stewart, once again, who says she was effectively held hostage in this taxi cab. Now, here's the deal on this. Does this show, once again that it's time for ride-hailing services in this city. We're the biggest city in North America that still does not have these services. you got a provincial government says, wait, wait some more. It's coming this fall. I'm still a little dubious about whether it's going to happen. Let's check in now with Kirk LaPointe. He's the editor-in-chief of Business in Vancouver. He's been writing about this. Hi, Kirk. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm great. Thanks a lot for coming on. So what, what, what do you think about this lady's story, and what do you think it says about the need for a ride-hailing option here? Well, I mean, it's a horrible story, of course. And... Um, you know, it, it happens uh, at times in our business. It's largely a very reliable, safe uh, taxi business that we have here. The drivers, I think, are, are courteous. They work really hard. Um, but, you you know, it's a human business. Yeah. And you're going to find people that actually don't do their job as well and, and don't uh, take the same pride and care in it. Does it mean that we need ride hailing? Well, I, I think we need ride hailing for a lot of different purposes. And number one, um, the whole idea of not having cash um, is is a, a really big attribute of this. You can simply book uh, all of your ride-hailing services across an app, and uh, you never need to carry cash with you. There's never any dispute over that, not getting cash tugged and taken away, that kind of thing. And then um, it's just also the supply, uh, the idea that, yeah. uh, that you know, you can wait and wait and wait in this town. And uh, since I wrote most, my most recent column on this, I mean, I've had so many people send me email and, and tweets saying, you know, I waited 45 minutes, I waited 20 minutes, I waited, you know, they said they were going to show, they didn't show. It, yeah. It's just that we just don't have a large enough supply at the right times of day and night in order right. to service a big region like ours. Right. I think you make some great points there. And I'm, I'm glad you pointed out that the vast majority of taxi drivers are just small business people trying to do a good job. And, yeah. and and I think that's an important thing to point out because quite often when we talk about this issue, I hear from cab drivers say, oh, you know, you don't like cab drivers. No, no, no. What I'm saying, we need an option. And by the way, there's been lots of horror stories of Uber drivers 
that have done terrible things in other cities. That's yeah, not the no point. point. I, I think what you need is you need to have these services which are now commonplace literally around the world. And I thought you wrote a great column on it. You, you think there's some politics at play on this, right? There definitely are. I mean, I think that um, both the Liberals and the NDP perceived uh, ride hailing as a bit of a third rail (laughs) politically. You didn't want to touch it too much. Uh, And I think that there's reason to believe that probably two uh, ridings in Surrey were uh, were lost to the Liberals last election. Of course, that was a difference in the election. Uh, So, you know, who wants to mess around with that? But the way that they're going about ride hailing in the province is is going to give us a very weakened version of it. And I think people are going to go, ah, it's no big deal. I don't think it's so great. Well, the fact is that they're, they're putting all kinds of restrictions and barriers and impediments on it. And if I were Lyft or Uber, I'd be really seriously questioning on whether I want to come because it's going to be a very lightweight version of what they're otherwise able to offer elsewhere in North America and around the world. Um, and, and I think that that probably speaks to the idea that the government is very, very bent on protecting the taxi industry. And look, there's a lot of money invested in this. These medallions were really ridiculously expensive. There's a lot of money to be lost as, as uh, time goes on. But I, I thought the big lost opportunity for both the Liberals and the NDP was to come up with a bit of an industrial adjustment plan. Like any other big disrupted industry, you ease people out of this and you ease in the new thing. Instead, what we're doing, we're going to bolt a new industry onto an old industry. And it's, you know, I don't know, Mike, it's like, it's like saying everything that you write online, somebody has got to print out, you know, it's like, you know, there's just, there's a silliness to it. And, uh, and I think it's going to prove to be um, a bit of a disappointment for people when it finally comes. Do you think that transition you were just talking about, do you mean like maybe the government should have offered maybe a buyout program? If, if you want to sell back your taxi uh, license, you, you could have an opportunity to do that. It could have been any kind of adjustment, you know, uh, uh, extended, you know, extend benefits, extend all kinds of things that would have helped people do it. Uh, give them, uh, give them incentives to come into the new industry. I mean, there, there, there's probably a hundred different ways in which you could do it. And goodness knows, we've done it for other industries in our province that have been heavily disrupted. And you know, you and I know there's also a, a federal measure underway right now around the disruption in the media business. And these are types of things that governments do when they recognize that the disruption is severe and that um, you, can't, you can't preserve the status quo. Um, you have to move on, but you should move on kind of gracefully with as few victims as possible. Speaking of Kirk Lapointe, he's the editor-in-chief of Business in Vancouver magazine. I think the politics of this thing are, are really critical. I think you're right about that. If you take a look at some of these very closely contested ridings, in Surrey, for example, like Surrey Fleetwood, where the NDP knocked off a Liberal cabinet minister there in the last election. Surrey mm-hmm. Guildford's another one. The NDP stole that seat away. I think even Delta North is another one that kind of swung potentially on this issue, where the NDP took that seat away from the Liberals. Ravi Kalon, the NDP MLA there now, big supporter of the, of the taxi industry. This is why, I mean, people sometimes ask me, why can't we get this done? It's because of the politics, I think, around it, and the perception, at least, by both parties that this issue, if they're seen to be very pro-ride hailing or anti-taxi, they're going to lose a couple of critical swing seats in Surrey yeah. and lose the entire election as a result. Yeah, because, there's, because there's no evidence that in uh, proposing that they were going to introduce ride hailing, that the Liberals benefited from it in the 2017 election. You know, it, they, they definitely were talking about it, but it didn't seem to pick up. You know, it didn't get them a millennial vote or anything like that. Um, it didn't help them in the surrounding communities uh, where there's the greatest complaint when people come into the downtown that they can't get back home. It didn't seem to benefit them. It just seemed to be, 
if anything, um, an opportunity for the NDP to stay rather silent on it, although they did say that they were going to introduce ride-hailing by the end of 2017. They just never got around to it. <laughs> and, uh, and I think they're going carefully now, really carefully, so as not to upset the apple cart. But I, I, I have news for you. I mean, that apple cart's upset, and anybody who travels now um, you know, really uses taxis for some things, ride-hailing for other things. And, and we're going to have to come up with a hybrid system that's going to have to be effective. But yeah. the one thing you can't do is introduce a really weak version of ride-hailing. That just won't wash. Kirk, thanks for coming on today. Great talking to you, Mike. Take Appreciate care. it. Kirk LaPointe, Editor-in-Chief, Business in Vancouver Magazine. Let's talk about your auto insurance now and what's going on at ICBC. We all know about the dumpster fire over there. It's still burning. ICBC still losing a lot of money. They're losing that last count about, what, a billion a year? Is that about three million bucks a day? By the time that we get through today's show here, oh, they'll probably lose hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, they're just bleeding money over there. So how are they going to fix this? Well, we've all heard of the remedies put forward by David Eby, the Attorney General, about some of the fixes that he is bringing in. Do you have any confidence that this is going to fix that dumpster fire over at ICBC, or are you hanging on to your wallet for your auto insurance rates to continue to go up, up, and away. Here's one of the things that's got me worried. Last week, the government backed down on a plan to bring in a fee for occasional drivers. They wanted to charge drivers like a $50 fee if you had an occasional driver on your car, but it was going to cost you even more than that because it could affect your insurance as well. The government got an earful on that one. They backed down. But I think you should still hang on to your wallet. This fall, the government will be rolling out their new premium structure for ICBC. And the government says they want to make your car insurance premiums more fair. So if you are a good driver, you would conceivably pay less. If you're a bad driver you would pay more. Most people consider themselves to be good drivers. They bring it on. Yeah, charge those other guys more. Charge me less. That sounds great. But I wonder if there's some people out there who are think they're good drivers. Maybe ICBC's got a different opinion and thinks you're a bad driver and they're going to crank up your auto insurance in the fall. We're going to find this is going to be a big story going forward here later this year. Let's check in now with Aaron Sutherland. He's the vice president of the Insurance Bureau of Canada. They represent private insurance companies in the country. Aaron, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks so much for having me today, Mike. What's your take on what's going on with ICBC right now and, and some of the reforms uh, that the government's rolling out and a little bit of confusion about what they're doing here? Yeah, you know, we're, we're seeing a, a lot of changes, certainly the, the most change we've likely ever seen in this province since ICBC was introduced, you know, 45 odd years ago. Uh, and I think you're quite right when you say, you know, we all need to hang on to our wallets as these changes unfold because, you know, whether it's the, the latest rate increase we've just seen, uh, just a little over 6%, uh, or the changes coming this September where, yes, maybe good drivers will pay relatively less uh, than they otherwise would have, and bad drivers are going to be paying much, much more. Uh, we're all likely going to be paying more over the coming years because ICBC is calling for, in their own financial plans, a 25% rate increase over the next three years. I'll say that again. They are calling for $1.7 billion in new revenue to try to get to try and balance their books. Uh, that is far more than all of the savings from all the initiatives government is undertaking. 
So we as drivers are likely only going to be paying more and more and more in the years ahead. And that's why, you know, maybe we should really start looking outside of ICBC for some solutions here. In most other Canadian provinces, it's the private insurance industry that delivers auto insurance. They do it much more affordably than what we see here in BC. Why aren't we looking to them for some of these solutions, seeing if other insurers can come here uh, and deliver a better product at a better price? Because at the end of the day, it's really drivers we should be focused on and the price they're paying. We've got a lot of affordability challenges here in this province. Auto insurance doesn't have to be one of them. Okay, when we talk, Aaron, about those changes that are coming this September, there's a lot of uncertainty and unknowns about how this is going to work, but generally the government has said if you're a good driver, you'll pay less. If you're a bad driver, you'll pay more. They figure that about two-thirds of drivers are quote-unquote good drivers. Maybe your insurance would go down for most people. Isn't that a good thing? You know, that is a good thing. And and pricing based on risk, which is what they're doing, basically starting to really look at your accident history and seeing, are you causing accidents? Because if you are, you should be paying more. That makes sense. That's how other insurers do it. Um, The concern here in BC is the quantum we're starting from. ICBC's prices are already so high um, that, you know, when they start tinkering with, you know, charging bad drivers even more, they're going to be paying much, much more than bad drivers in other provinces. But even good drivers, you have to be really careful with what ICBC is saying here. They are saying you will pay relatively less. That doesn't mean less than what you were paying before the latest rate increases. They're simply saying you will pay relatively less compared to those bad drivers out there. Uh, and again, when we look at the overall rate increases that are coming forward, uh, you know, 6.3% on the basic, they didn't, this is the first year in a long time that ICBC hasn't released the optional rate increase. That should give everyone pause because the only reason you don't disclose a rate increase is when it's really high. Uh, and when yeah. we look at the numbers, we think it's it's likely in the double digits in terms of what drivers are experiencing on the optional side. And so it, it seems like, yes, good drivers are going to pay relatively less, but it seems like we're all going to be paying much, much more in the years ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an important point that if, if you put it that way, you're going to pay relatively less. So maybe more accurately way to describe it is everyone's going to pay more, but if you're a good driver, I guess you will just pay less more so in other words you would pay you wouldn't pay as much as you otherwise would have uh before the government brought in these changes you pay less more but what if you're a bad driver see this is one of the things that you know i'm wondering about like what if you got like one ticket or one minor at fault accident or one distracted driving uh, incident or ticket does that make you a bad driver i mean we still don't know yet how how icbc is going to define this right yeah, you know, we still have a lot of those outstanding questions. Uh, we do know that it's going to take, I believe, uh, 20 years now of safe driving before you get that one free accident forgiveness. Uh, so if you haven't been driving clean for 20 years and you do get into an accident, you're likely going to be categorized as a bad driver and pay much, much more. And again, as you pointed out, we're all likely going to be paying uh, more. It's just whether we're paying less, more, or, or much more. Uh, but we should be talking about how do we start driving prices down? How do we start improving affordability here? And, you know, why are we so beholden to having, you know, a government monopoly provide auto insurance? Why aren't we looking to the innovations and the efficiencies that the private sector has created in other provinces, in virtually every other jurisdiction in North America? And looking to these other companies and saying, look, if you guys have found ways to do this more affordably, can you come here in BC and help solve this issue for us? 
Okay. Uh, you know, that's a question we all need to be asking, you know, and why aren't we looking outside of ICBC for some of these solutions? Okay, what would happen, just real quickly, and then we'll take a break and then take some phone calls, but what would happen if the government turned around and shocked everybody? This, I don't think this is going to happen, but let's, let's imagine for a second they did this. If David Eby held a news conference tomorrow and said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to open up basic auto insurance, which is currently a monopoly right now for ICBC. We're going to open that up to private sector competition so you can go out and buy your basic auto insurance which everyone is legally supposed required to get and you can buy that from a private auto insurer if you want to this would be what you guys would love to see what would what would be the effect of that for consumers in bc well we don't know until we try but what we do know uh, and what studies have shown is the drivers could save hundreds of dollars annually in that instance you know there was a study out in 2017 uh, from MNP, their large consulting firm, they found drivers could expect to save on average $325 if you opened up uh, ICBC to what you're talking about. Uh, and we think drivers deserve that opportunity to shop around to find those savings. I think David Eby deserves a lot of kudos for the, and you know, the, the current government deserves a lot of credit for the initiatives they're bringing in to try to fix this system. And, you know, um, when we in the private sector, we look at what BC is doing. A lot of it makes sense. Some of it doesn't, like the unlisted driver protection. That was unique in North America, uh, and it's probably a good thing that government has taken a second look at that and told ICBC that, you know, that really isn't fair and to scrap that. Um, so, okay. But, you know, the one thing we really disagree on is why are we so beholden to, to having ICBC? Why don't, you know, we don't have to get okay. rid of them, but let's give drivers a choice. I'll tell you what, the Liberals putting this one on the table... You know, once again, though, it's like they had 16 years to do something. They didn't do it. Now, looking for a wedge issue against the NDP, you got Andrew Wilkinson, the liberal leader, talking about private auto insurance. I, I think that's actually a good thing. Like, let's put this on the table. Let's have a discussion about it. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Hiya, Vicky. Hi there, Mike. You made Hi. a comment or you asked a question about private auto insurance be able to or should they be able to sell basic insurance so my question is this who's going to pay for your accident benefits part seven of the insurance act is is what icbc pays your accident benefits through that's your chiropractic that's your doctor visit your doctor bills icbc when they see you in relation to a car accident okay who's going to pay that is it just going to get directly billed to msp because you can bet private auto insurance whose only goal is profit is not going to want to take on those costs so the taxpayers of bc will end up paying for car accident victims medical costs that's not the way to go when the ndp government brought in icbc i think it was 1972 it was so that the public would not be going bankrupt broke from having to to shoulder their own medical costs related to car accidents so private has to we need to stop that that's nonsense we need to fix icbc Vicky, thank you for a good call. Well, let's go to Aaron Sutherland. He's with the he's with the private insurance companies. Aaron, what's your answer to her question? Yeah, no, it's it's a really good question because you know we really need to go into some a discussion like this with our eyes wide open and, and that full understanding. Uh, in most other Canadian provinces where private insurers compete, uh, it's actually private insurers that pay those costs. They pay your chiropractic bills. They don't. It doesn't all just end up on the back of the the provincial uh, government and provincial medical system. It is the the the, the insurance 
system that pays those and, and where so that's part of your coverage it's part that's... of your coverage and the private sector pays those bills do you have to buy, you have to buy that coverage right. though right what if you don't buy that coverage what is that optional well, coverage or is that mandatory it's so it's typically mandatory so the government okay. you know even when the private sector sells it the government describes and prescribes what they have to sell and it's very similar across the provinces so basic insurance in bc is quite similar to basic insurance in alberta and it's similar uh, and other provinces as well. It is those okay. those Part 7 benefits, and where it's delivered by the private sector, it's the private sector that pays those, and your premium goes towards that. And Let's your premium to... is much lower in other provinces. Let's go to Ray in Langley. Hi, Ray. Hello. Hi, what do you think? I think that if uh, they introduce the private, we shouldn't have to buy insurance if we don't want to. What do you mean by that? Just, if I may, if I get in an accident, I pay the bill. Well, no, I mean, no, no, I mean, like you have to have mandatory insurance. I mean, uh, Aaron, is, yeah. is insurance mandatory in other provinces that have private insurance? There's always a minimum mandatory, and, and, and I'll, yeah. I'll just briefly explain why. You don't have to buy insurance for your home because if you burn down your home, that's on you, uh, and that doesn't impact anybody else. But if you crash your car into someone else and you don't have insurance, you don't have any of it, any way to, or you potentially don't have the funds that that other individual needs to recover from their injuries, or that you need to recover from your injuries. So there is a public good in making at least a mandatory minimum for insurance, and that's why all provinces prescribe uh, something very similar to ICBC's basic insurance. Again, the difference is most other provinces, it's not ICBC selling it. It's one of many companies, okay. uh, and they sell it, again, much more affordably than ICBC does. David in Nanaimo. Morning, Mike. Um, I think private insurance is a pipe dream. There's no way it can happen in B.C. because the government offloads too many expenses on ICBC that they hide, and that's the real dumpster fire here. If you look at ICBC's latest set of statements, there's $1.3 billion, that's billion of the B dollars, in non-insurance-related expenses that they absorb from the government. The government can't afford to reabsorb that and, and possibly balance their budget. They hide that from the public. And as I said, that's the real dumpster fire. No private insurer in Canada anywhere absorbs any of those costs. So to compare our insurance rates with those in Alberta, for instance, which do not have the same Part 7 benefits, we have $300,000 in coverage. Alberta, I believe, has $50,000 in coverage under Part 7. It is ridiculous because the Alberta private insurers do not pay for increased policing costs, road intersection improvements. They don't pay for red light cameras, all those new speed cameras that the government just installed are all on ICBC's back. They don't pay for driver's licensing and medical services plan cards. The government, the government collected over $600 million in revenue through driver's licensing fines in the latest financial statements and gave not a dime back to ICBC. So if you take that $1.3 billion that ICBC ratepayers support the taxpayers of the province, it's not the converse. Mr. Eby always says we can't have the taxpayers supporting ICBC. The taxpayers have never supported ICBC. The converse is true. If you take that $1.3 billion back into the government's coffers where it belongs, ICBC is fine, and our rates would be fine as well. But no private insurer is ever going to cover that. Thank you for a good call. Aaron, your thoughts? Uh, A little bit to unpack there. So in terms of how much public good ICBC does, uh, my understanding is they do about $200 million annually in non-insurance services. These are things like driver's licensing and road safety, which, which we were talking about. Um, you do pay a fee on your insurance for some of those. Uh, you know, there's no reason that you couldn't continue to do that. And it doesn't make a lot of sense that you would include that in your insurance premium. So if you opened it up to the private sector, 
uh, you know, you could use the corporate taxes the private sector would pay to pay for some of that, uh, and you okay. could offset some of that there. On the, you know, on this, you know, talking about, you know, how much ICBC pays out versus the, the private sector, you know, and, and certainly it's true that the limits of what ICBC will pay out are much higher, but it's not the limits we should be looking at. It's what are drivers actually receiving when they make a claim. And when you look at the average claim size across this country, we aren't getting anything more than anyone else here in BC. In fact, compared to some provinces, we're actually getting quite a bit less. The average claim size in BC is around $42,000, about the same as Alberta, and a little bit less than what they're getting in Ontario. But we are paying okay. much, much more for those claims. So that value for dollars simply isn't there. And while ICBC's limits of what they can pay are higher, they aren't actually giving it to drivers when they make a claim. That's okay. a problem. That means we need to start looking somewhere else for the solution okay. here. This is a hot issue. I think it's going to get hotter. I know we'll be talking to you again. Thanks for your time today. Thanks so much for having me today, Mike. Okay, you bet. Aaron Sutherland, Vice President, Insurance Bureau of Canada. Uh, the BC uh, legislative session wrapped up uh, just the other day. It was a pretty wild session of the legislature, as usual, in a place where you just never know what's going to happen next. Yeah, after covering politics in this province for a long time, I often tell my friends I never have writer's block. There's something always going on. And you just never know what craziness is going to happen next. It can happen at any time. I mean, you can walk into the legislature and take a look at the premier's mugshot spitting out of a fax machine. I remember that happened one day with... Gordon Campbell, when he got picked up for drunk driving in Hawaii, the infamous Maui Owie. Or you could see the premier's house getting raided by the cops. Remember when that happened to Glenn Clark? And the cops raided his house, and there's a TV camera filming the whole thing through his kitchen window. I mean, just crazy stuff happens. You could show up, and the cops will be busting the legislature like they did in the BC rail scandal where you had a whole troop of sergeants, RCMP officials trooping into the legislature and executing a search warrant and seizing documents in the BC rail affair. Again, this is just another one that you'd never seen before. And you think what happens next? The most recent one has been the uproar over Daryl Plekis, the speaker of the legislature this guy is like a bull in a china shop he doesn't care how many dishes he breaks he's gonna do what he's gonna do you can't control this guy they've tried to control him you remember a few weeks ago they brought in wally opal to try and rein the guy in they said okay bring him wally in as an advisor one of the things that opal told the guy and i've got this from good sources was just shut up Stop getting everybody upset. Follow normal investigation protocols on this spending scandal around the legislature and just calm everything down. Guy was wasting his breath. That's not the way that Daryl Plekis operates. You can't control this guy. He is uncontrollable. He will do what he's going to do. He will say what he's going to say. Now, the most recent uproar at the legislature is when Plekis decided to copy a bunch of computer hard drives at the B.C. legislature. He said he wanted to do that in order to preserve potential evidence 
with more investigations going forward. I want you to phone me on that and tell me what you think about it. Because there's some people who think that Plekis is out of control. He should be replaced as the speaker. Others say he's doing a good job. He's, uh, he's rooting out corruption and wasteful spending. And the guy's just doing what he's got to do. I'll tell you one thing, though. There is no love lost between Plekis and the liberals. They hate each other. Now, have a listen to this. This is Andrew Wilkinson, the liberal leader, uh, calling for Plekis to be replaced as the speaker. He uh, ignored that request. And so here we are uh, putting this uh, information on the table. We've also offered, in order to make clear this isn't any kind of political stunt, to put up a B.C. liberal as a speaker until at least next spring, and that has met deaf ears from the NDP. Okay, Wilkinson and the Liberals just kind of hate Plekis because remember what he did to them. He basically stabbed them in the back when he took the speaker's job. It helped put uh, John Horgan into the Premier's office. It took away a Liberal vote in there. They have never forgiven the guy. Now, the other day on the show, I spoke to a guy named Alan Mullen. He is the chief of staff to Daryl Plekis, kind of the Robin to his Batman. And here is Alan Mullen going after the liberal leader. I honestly, and I want to say this on a personal note, I find Mr. Wilkinson's behavior uh, in the last 24 hours and even in the last few months disgraceful, with a capital D. Absolutely disgraceful. Absolutely disgraceful. That's what the chief of staff or the speaker of the legislature says about the leader of the opposition. I've never seen stuff like this before around this place. Like I said, crazy stuff happens. You could have something crazier happen tomorrow. But let's check in with Keith Baldry about it now. He's the global BC legislature bureau chief. You've seen a few crazy things around this place over the years. We've just had this session wrap up. More fireworks with Plekis. What do you think about this whole Plekis situation right now? Well, I think it's a toxic workplace situation. I, you know, the, the, the fight between liber the liberals and Plekis is one thing, and that's a political fight. It's unprecedented to have a speaker so partisan, and for Alan Mullen to, as his representative, to go after one political leader uh, like that is, again, unprecedented. But I look at it uh, from the point of view of the people who work at the legislature, and I've talked to so many people who, who come up to me and volunteer their opinion. Plekis is, I think, um, looked upon extremely disfavorably by the people who work at the legislature, not the political staff, not the people who come and go, depending on who wins the election. I'm talking about the security guards, the dining room people, the librarians, the custodians, the people who work here, and this is their workplace, view this as a, a workplace bullying situation. It's got nothing to do with Plekis versus Wilkinson. It's Plekis versus the, the people who actually work here. And that's why I think is is so troubling. I mean, p politics is always going to happen at this place. Obviously, it's a political ch uh, chamber. It's always politically charged. Yeah. But I've never seen a situation where the people who actually work for all sides in the legislature are find this thing so distasteful and basically liken the fact that Daryl Plekis is a workplace bully. Well, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? Because one of the investigations that's going on around here, Keith, is the so-called workplace review, mm -hmm. which is supposed to be looking into bullying and harassment in the workplace is one of the things that it's examining. And Plekis said that this investigation, one of several still going on, 
was sparked by a lot of whistleblowers mm-hmm. who came to him privately and said, look, these terrible things happened to me in this building, and he wanted an investigation done on it. Well, So here he is being accused of bullying himself. I, look at, I invite people to read Beverly McLaughlin's report. Everybody's focused on the fact that Craig James was found guilty of misconduct. Gary the, Lenz, the former clerk. The former clerk. Gary Lenz was absolved by her. But there's also other aspects in there where she actually examines Plekis's other allegations. Yeah. One of the allegations was that he accused the former Sergeant Arms and the, the Deputy Sergeant Arms, Gary An- uh, Renianis, of uh, cooking up this scheme to put an employee on a fake job because they were worried about his mental health. In fact, that he was contemplating suicide. Uh, she, found, she interviewed everybody involved and found that completely baseless. She called it bizarre for the speaker to do this. I know the person. We all know the person who was actually the subject of that. Uh, he, his last day was uh, last week. He came in to say goodbye to everybody. He's, I, I can tell you, he's furious at, at Plekis, as are other Sergeant Arms staff, for trumpeting up this, this bizarre accusation about two employees cooking up this sort of scheme when McLaughlin interviewed everybody and said it was completely baseless and pointless. So Daryl Plekis, I think, gets a free ride by, from a lot of people who think he's warning out corruption. He's, he is, congratulations for you know going after Craig he did James. Take, he did take down the, yeah, the clerk. Exactly. But I think by going further and making more allegations against other people in this building. In fact, in the, in, in the meeting he had with the House leaders last week, uh, he accuses his own security staff of corruption, wants a police investigation. And I've talked to, I'd say, a dozen of the security staff who are all highly trained police officers. These are not just random people. They are uh, highly skilled, highly trained police officers from various detachments. They're absolutely furious. Who have at a him. very important job around the place, by the way, they, on things like anti-terrorism preparation and keep, stuff like that. They keep all of us safe. They do, yeah. They're very professional. And again, and uh, is it is it true that they're thinking of forming a union yes, now they are. because they're so mad at Pluckus? Well, I think it goes beyond the security force. The VCGU is in this building as we speak, talking to people about certifying to join uh, their union. So I think it could very well extend beyond. Uh, the security force, because everybody here now feels somewhat threatened by a speaker who thinks he's on a crusade but I don't, and, and with Alan Mullen, but I don't think they realize the impact they're having. Again, forget Andrew Wilkinson and the liberals. We're yeah. talking the people who actually work in the building. They're the ones who are so furious okay. and afraid for their jobs. They're thinking of unionizing. Okay, Wilkinson and the liberals are very clear that they've lost confidence in Plekis and they want him replaced, but that clearly nah. is not going to happen. No. Especially, well, under the rules of the legislature, you can't get rid of a speaker unless he basically is voted out of office or resigns or dies. You know, that, that's the only way legally. Yeah. But, I mean, if all three House leaders went to the guy privately and said, look, we've all lost confidence in you. We want you to resign. Presumably the guy would maybe step aside. But that's not happening because you got Horgan and the NDP House leader, Mike Farnworth, and also the Green Party, their governing partner, saying, we still support this guy. If this guy is so bad, why are the NDP and Greens sticking with him? Well, they need him in the chair because they can. it's one less vote for the Liberals. Yeah. I mean, that's what it comes down to. It's all about one vote. And, but the uh, Liberals said, we'll put up another one of our Well, people. that was sort of a hollow promise because Wilkinson only agreed to put up a speaker until next spring. And that's yeah. what's the point of that? If you're the NDP, why would you Why would you, you know, go for that? I've, I've talked to New Democrats and Greens about this. They're really rolling their eyes at Plekis, but I think they're just hoping things calm down. And Alan Mullen told you there's no more investigations right now, which I think is also lowers the temperature, if that is actually true. Star 9898 on your cell. You just wrote a column, Keith, saying you thought the NDP basically won the legislative session that just wrapped up. Why do you think that? 
Well, I think on a daily basis, uh, I mean, the Liberals got in a few good shots. I mean, they, they forced Horgan to have a ga- an inquiry into gas prices. Uh, they made Ginny Sims look foolish, the Citizen Services Minister, over her emails. Uh, they got Horgan to admit their whole uh, plan to protect the caribou at the expense of forestry operations was a bust. Uh, but I think day in and day out, you saw an NDP government increasingly confident of its hold on government. The Greens increasingly showing that they are part of the conversation on certain policies, but they're not going to bring the NDP down. So the NDP, I think this last session, it magnified uh, and put into full light their grip on power. It's Remember, Mike, right at the election, we were all wondering, how long is the NDP going to last? You know, Because a minority like government typically lasts a yeah. couple of years or less. Yeah, and this is, I think, a de facto majority because the Greens are not going to bring these guys down. And I think that's starting to settle in on everybody. And I think it, the NDP is becoming more confident. The Liberals, by contrast, I still think a lot of them are continuing to be in denial. I wrote that it's like they're in a, they think they're in a bad dream, that they're going to wake up one day and find themselves on the other side of the, of the, of the uh, chamber floor. That's not going to happen. Uh, and again, some of them, I think the newcomers don't have that type of baggage because they had no experience yeah. in government. But I think it's, it's the old guard has to give way or make room for the new guard. And the Liberals really have to rebrand themselves and redefine themselves and, and renew themselves. And I don't think they're very far along on that on that journey. I think one of the things that's problematic for the Liberals right now, and I think they're secretly scared about this, but they never would admit it, and it's that money laundering inquiry that mm-hmm. will likely be up and running by the fall. And once again, this is a spearheaded by David Eby, the Attorney General, who is just, in my mind, is probably turned in the most the most effective cabinet minister that Horgan's got and the guy's just swinging a political wrecking ball at the liberals every time he talks about this money laundering stuff the liberals are taking damage and they know it darn well and this political uh, this public inquiry in the fall I'm sure the NDP are hoping they'll continue to inflict damage on the liberals with it oh I think the money laundering (laughs) as as they are hurting the NDP that much I mean people say oh you know gaming uh, casinos developed on the NDP's watching the 90s true but I don't think Austin Cullen the commissioner is going to spend a lot of time looking at what happened in the 1990s he's going to look at something more up to date more recent and that brings into play what happened on the liberals watch so I think this is only bad news for the BC liberals but again it'll be interesting how many people actually make it to the witness stand before lawyers get involved here so uh, but certainly the liberals have the most to lose with what could become sort of an ongoing never-ending soap opera uh, that it lasts well until I mean he's supposed to report out before the general election in, in October 2021 he's supposed to come in, in I think in May uh, but there's every reason to think that he may have to extend that he's got a lot on his plate to look at something like I think 10 sectors he's got to look at uh, examine for potential money laundering I'm not sure he can do that in the in the short time frame one of the, one of the things I think is really troubling for the liberals right now is there there have already been some whistleblowers that have come forward on this file and mm-hmm. have told really interesting stories about what they saw and observed about money laundering in casinos and real estate and with the police that were supposed to be on top of this and i'm thinking of guys like ross alderson who yep. was formerly with the uh the uh, bc lottery branch that was in charge of money laundering a guy named fred pinnock who's a former police officer who's come forward there there are several others sort of very brave whistleblowers that mm-hmm. have come forward and there could be you can see those I can see those guys testifying on the stand and really damaging the yep. liberals with what they have to say. And there could be more. There's probably a lot more people who got stuff to say that haven't had the courage to come forward. But once they have the protection of a public inquirer, they're subpoenaed. 
uh, they come forward and they can inflict more damage on well, the liberals. So far, we've heard what, from whistleblowers in the gaming industry. So I wonder if we're going to hear from whistleblowers in the real estate sector, uh, the banking sector, the money lending sector, uh, luxury car sector. These are the other areas that Austin Collins has been tasked to to examine as well. So it's not just gambling. It's going to it's very far reaching and, and encompassing. Which again, I wonder if he can get it all done in the short time frame he's been given. What can the liberals do to kind of defend themselves or blunt these attacks or to turn it around or change the channel and, and get it onto something else? I mean, we talked earlier on the show today about uh, private auto insurance, for example, that's frequently brought up by Wilkinson that maybe we should have private car insurance in this mm -hmm. province. They're, you can see how they're looking for an, an issue. To yep. kind of get the public focused on it and to make the the NDP the bad guys. Well, ICBC is a is a good issue to hit on if you're if you're the Liberals. Um, there are big changes coming to our insurance rates in September October. Uh, that's going to get a lot of people's attention. That will knock anything with money laundering off off the table for a while because people will be focused on their insurance rates. And David Eby says most people will benefit from the changes, but that doesn't mean hundreds of thousands of people will be put at a disadvantage. And the, I think the Liberals will try to tap into that. I think the NDP is always vulnerable historically on issues like taxation. So the speculation tax, the employees' health tax, employers' health tax, that's going to start to take root, I think. And uh, again, nobody really likes to talk about taxes in this okay. process. And I think that's a vulnerability for the NDP as well. We got one minute left. What about this gas price inquiry that Horgan has ordered? Yeah. Isn't this inquiry a joke, yeah. especially when it's not looking at taxes or probably not even going to look at the Trans Mountain Pipeline either? No, I think it's very limited in scope. I don't think it's. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Going to do anything. It might, it might give a nice little uh, explanation of why gas prices are what they are, but they're not going to cause prices to go down. Thanks for coming in. All right. Appreciate it. That's Keith Baldry. He's the Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Wild house party on Saturday night in Anmore. Normally a, a quiet little place near Port Moody on uh, on Indian Arm. There was a massive party there Saturday night that's got a lot of people upset. And this is not like the next door teenagers cranking up the stereo a little too loud. I'm talking about 300 people, actually more than 300 people, limousines, super duper sports cars, Lamborghinis, lots of booze, drugs, cops showing up, and of course... The helicopter landing in the backyard. Yes, the helicopter. This is wild. Who are these people? And are they going to throw another rager next weekend? Let's check in with John McCune now. He's the mayor of Anmore. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Thanks a lot for coming on. This is an incredible story here. When did, when did you first find out about this party? When did you first hear about it? I just finished mowing my own lawn on Saturday at about 5 o'clock, and then... Uh I heard a helicopter very low hovering above. I thought initially it was something to do with the search and rescue, but uh, then the phone started to light up, and I got a notification from the volunteer fire department that uh, there had been a drug overdose and a call had been sent out. So um, then the neighbors started to, to call me going, what was going on here and if this was authorized, which it definitely wasn't. And this, took, this party took place at like a, a rented house? A rented house um, at the end of a single-lane residential street, which you would quite often see 
kids playing ball hockey on and uh, and playing frisbee and football and stuff like that. So very quiet neighborhood, strong residential, very sought after in the community. Okay. What are your thoughts on this party? How do you feel about it? But what happened there? Uh, I'm shocked. Um, you know, I, we had a council meeting last night, and I conveyed to our staff, uh, council, uh, it wants every resource uh, exercise to make sure that this doesn't happen again. It was, uh, there was three helicopters. Two of them actually landed in the backyard. Um, we had neighbors concerned that, uh, you know, it's such a tight landing space. How could this happen? Uh, we put a inquiry into Transport Canada as to that. We did that yesterday. Um, we've also contacted um, us trying to set up a meeting with the RCMP who did attend at one point as to what the police file regards and also with our fire department as well. Um, you know, our, one of the neighbors commented if we were having a campfire in the backyard, the wash from the helicopters would have probably set the forest on fire. Okay, I'm just looking at some of the social media posts. Uh, it, it appears from a lot of the reports and social media, this party was thrown by a guy named Justin Plows, who owns a country. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but he owns a company called Public Relations Canada. I'm taking a look at his Instagram uh, profile that says he's the owner of this public relations company. It also says he's a NASCAR announcer, a social influencer, actor and producer, public speaker, and is also involved in event promotion. That was quite a, an event that he promoted on Saturday night. Uh, well, do, you know, would, do you know this guy? Yeah, Who is this guy? I, I have no idea. Um, I know that the owner of the house is an offshore owner. He owns two or three houses uh, within our municipality. Um, our, our belief is that he rented out through a rental company, and we want to make sure we're going to be taking steps that the rental companies do a better job vetting uh, potential um, residents um, or tenants and making sure as well that we monitor the VRBO, Airbnb, Craigslist to that we don't have this sort of uh, use ever, ever in the future. Okay, speaking to Anmore Mayor John McEwen about this huge house party that happened on sa on Saturday night. You take a look at the social media posts on this, Mr. Mayor. They say there were 1,700 cans of uh, beer consumed at this event, 526 ounces of whiskey, 333 people in attendance, seven supercars, including Lamborghinis, the three helicopters. It says five hypercars were there. What's a hypercar? Do you have any idea? I have no idea. I know that though <laughs> we received complaints of cars zooming down this narrow street. So it was uh, the whole the whole community. It's been very concerning. I guess unfortunately, I'm not much of a social media person but you know i guess he's gotten the attention that he certainly wants by the amount of interest that i've had in regards to covering this story yeah i mean from some of these been talking to the media we've reached out to him too to see if we can get him on the show here to, to get his side of it but he, he says that he doesn't seem to be uh apologetic or anything about it in fact he says he's thinking of throwing another another rager and he said the next one he hopes to have monster trucks like i uh, i'm <laughs> i'm speechless <laughs> All right. So what do you think should be done about this? I mean, in terms of the short-term rentals or Airbnb, do you think you need a tougher crackdown on something like that? Well, we're, that's what we're definitely going to be looking at because that's not the type of community that we have. Um, we didn't think it was much of a problem, but obviously from from this, what's happened here, obviously we need to make sure that there is absolutely no uh, opportunity to do this. I think the challenge as well is with the real estate market, 
leaving some of these homes open, the rental agencies are very aggressive as to as long as they can get money for the rentals. That's how they get paid. So we uh, we as a community are going to do our best to make sure that everybody is well aware of the permitted uses of these houses. Okay, and in terms of the the investigations going on now in the aftermath of this thing, I mean, in in some ways, this is a a story that might make people kind of laugh or whatever. Oh, there was some big party, but when you're talking about helicopters landing in someone's backyard, I mean, that is obviously ridiculous. And isn't that illegal? Well, that's what that's what we're pursuing. Um, our yeah. fire chief has simply said that it, it it can't be legal. If you think about it, this property was on a, an acre on a corner. So there's there was probably, you know, the house itself is a fairly large house, about 10,000 square foot plus pool plus uh, driveway and landscaping. There was probably only an area of about 8,000 square feet to land. And not just oh. one, but two helicopters. So we have grave concerns, and that's why we uh, immediately sent out uh, a concerning letter to a transport candidate for them to investigate. And with all the social media, as you said, there's all the markings and identifications for each one of the helicopters. What did uh, Transport Canada say to you when you, you alerted we, uh, them? We haven't had a response yet. That We just fired that off first thing, uh, or actually yesterday afternoon. And we're going to be following up with the RCMP because they attended as well because of the uh, overdose. Wow, what a night for you. Uh, boy, <laughs> we'll see where it goes. It's never a dull moment as mayor. I guess, is this, the, is this the craziest thing you've ever seen there in Anmore in terms of like a, an out-of-control house party? Uh, yeah, I would have to say that this pretty much tops the, uh, tops the list. Um, you know, we, we do have, um, you know, social functions and big gatherings, but they're very yeah. well you know, behaved, and it's usually a communal thing. People will walk to them, and uh, and that. So, this is completely out of the norm. Um, uh, yeah, and it's uh, it certainly isn't what our community is about, and uh, and people are wanting to ensure that within the community that we take this very seriously, so it doesn't happen again. Thanks for coming on. You're welcome. Thank you. I appreciate it. That is John McEwen. He is the mayor of Anmore, talking about that insane house party that happened in his community on saturday night as we get closer to a federal election this fall i think voters should get ready for a major debate on gun control the justin trudeau government clearly putting this one on the agenda over the last few days bill blair the federal cabinet minister responsible on this file says no options have been taken off the table as the government considers measures to clamp down on guns designed to hunt people, in the words of the minister. We're talking about handguns, maybe assault-style rifles or military weapons. The minister says these guns are designed to hunt people, not animals. Could we see a proposed ban on these weapons in Canada. We talked about this issue earlier this week on the show. I spoke to Rod Giltaka from the Canadian Coalition of Firearms Rights. Of course, they're concerned about these remarks from the federal government. Here's what Giltaka told me. I think it's terrible. And uh, Bill Blair was the police chief in, uh, in Toronto for a long time. He knows better than this, but he's now become a politician. Uh, the minister of, um, I can't remember his title, it's long, and, uh, and, <laughs> and no one's had that title before, but it's, he's really propagandizing now. And unfortunately uh, for him, real leadership, uh, especially on something like the firearm file, requires honesty and courage and not the opposite. 
Okay, let's get the other side of it now with my guest, Wendy Souk here. She is the president of the Coalition for Gun Control in Canada. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi, Wendy. Hi. Thanks a lot for coming on. What do you think about uh, Bill Blair's comments on this file the last few days? Well, I, I would actually say exactly the opposite, that precisely because he's been a chief of police, he knows the facts, he knows the difference between the rhetoric and the reality. He certainly knows that there are no gun rights in, in Canada, and uh, he knows uh, what Canadians want. They want uh, to uh, support legitimate uses of firearms, but they definitely want um, further restrictions on firearms that are not reasonably used for hunting, and that includes handguns and military assault weapons. Uh, a poll just came out on this matter, and of course, physicians, public health experts, victims, groups, and so on, have been very, very clear on why this is important. When you say there are no gun rights in Canada, what do you mean by that? Uh, the Supreme Court of Canada has had several rulings where they've specifically said there is no right to bear arms in, in Canada. Um, and there, in fact, the, the right to be safe is, is what um, supports government efforts to appropriately regulate firearms and reduce the risk, they will be misused. Do you think there should be a ban on handguns in Canada? Except for the use of police and security guards, yes, and most Canadians agree with me, as do the public health experts and others. Okay, how would you enforce a ban like that? We talked about this on the show earlier this week with Rod Giltaka from the Gun Rights Coalition there who said that the, the number of handguns in Canada just escapes me right now, but he, it was a very large number, and he, he was saying, well, how would, how would this work? Would, would anyone who owns a handgun in Canada be required to surrender to them to the police, or how do, you see, how do you feel something like that would work? Well, historically what we've done, for example, in 1977, we banned fully automatic weapons, and they grandfathered, that's their word, not mine, existing owners. So if you have one, you keep it. In uh, 1991 and then again in 1995, they prohibited certain kinds of uh, semi-automatic assault weapons, particularly the convertible, um, the selective fire ones that could be switched back and forth. And in uh, 95, they also banned uh, short-barreled handguns. Again, they grandfathered existing owners so they could keep them. Bill C-71 has banned a couple of uh, assault-style firearms but included provisions for current owners. So typically, uh, the Canadian approach is very different than the approach in the UK or Australia. They prohibit the future sale and possession that current owners get to keep them. Okay, speaking to Wendy Souk here from the Coalition for Gun Control and what, what I think could emerge as, as a key election issue in our country in the fall, and that's over gun control. What, what about these semi-automatic rifles or military military style weapons or assault weapons that Bill Blair has specifically mentioned as part of this review can can you define what that what that is first of all what is an what is an assault weapon and what should be done about those so the definitions of assault weapon uh, vary quite quite considerably from country to country it's one of the big problems we have in Canada right now is there isn't really definition. So while uh, both uh, fully automatic and semi-automatic AK-47s are prohibited weapons, the AR-15, which is most clearly um, a military weapon, which 
huge pressure in the U.S. to prohibit its military weapon after use in mass shooting, is still sold as a restricted weapon. So we have to yeah. clean up the uh, classifications. And normally the way um, weapons are classified is based on a um, point system. And this is exactly the way the assault weapons ban worked in the United States, but also uh, in New Zealand and lots of other countries that have these provisions. And so there are certainly um, semi-automatic hunting rifles, and they have clear characteristics that are different than semi-automatic assault weapons, which typically would accept a large capacity magazine. They might have a shorter um, a shorter stock. They might accept a bayonet mount or have a, a muzzle cooler or whatever because they're designed to shoot not with great accuracy, but basically to be able to shoot very, very quickly um, in military kinds of environments. There are lots of guns that kind of sit on the border where one variant might be classified as a military uh, weapon and another, but the fact it's complicated is no reason yeah. to do nothing. And, you know, my preference, frankly, would be to use exactly the approach some countries use which is like uh, the way in which we regulate pharmaceutical products, which is they're prohibited unless they're on the, um, on the list of, of legally um, owned firearms. And that's another way to, to uh, avoid the problems that we have with uh, manufacturers changing one feature or calling it something else and skirting the uh, regulations. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be an interesting debate because when you talk about a semi-automatic rifle that is used for hunting, I don't believe many groups are calling for those weapons to be banned, certainly not your own, right? Like a, a semi-automatic hunting rifle, you you believe, should still be allowed. Correct? Absolutely. But yeah. semi-automatic hunting rifles typically don't have, for example, a large capacity magazine or a pistol grip that allows you to essentially spray fire. A semi-automatic hunting rifle is typically designed for great precision. So, you know, these are not easy questions for sure, but all, all I would say is most industrialized countries in the world have found ways to prohibit these guns in most industrialized countries around the world, with the exception of the United States. The AR-15 is clearly understood to be a military weapon and not available for civilian purposes. Okay, what do you want to see the government do here? I, well, you know, the, the way in which the current legislation is written, um, the government has the power through orders in council, um, through the, uh, the RCMP, to prohibit firearms. So uh, they could have cleaned this up, um, quite frankly, years ago. And I think rather, given how hard it's been just to get C-71 through, which really just restored provisions that were in place in 1977, um, uh, you know, my preference would be that they move forward with orders in council to the extent that they can. Um, and orders in council allow you to prohibit firearms not reasonably used uh, in hunting. I would like them to, to go, go with a go-forward strategy where the sale import um, of, of these guns is prohibited, but find a solution, probably grandfathering um, existing okay. uh, existing owners with, with certain restrictions. And over time, you know, we will then see those, those firearms get turned in. Some people may feel it's um, 
it's not worth having them. And, and you know, it's a less dramatic solution than what they did in, in the UK or in Australia. But I think in Canada, it's really the only solution. There are over 3,000 AR-15s, for example. If you prohibited and bought those, tried to buy those back or confiscate them or something, you would just have a big fight on your hands. And my view is we can prohibit the future sale and import and at least for generations to come, we won't see another doubling of restricted and prohibited weapons. In 1993, there were about 300,000 restricted and prohibited weapons, including handguns and assault weapons. Now there are over a million, and that's what happens when you have no action. In 10 more years, there will be more than 2 million, and it will be too late to do anything. That's my sense okay. of urgency. Thank you for coming on today with your perspective on it. You're welcome. Thank you. Wendy Souk here, president of the Coalition for Gun Control. This week, there's a lot of major anniversaries of huge historical events. Of course, tomorrow, the 75th anniversary of the D-Day landings. We'll have coverage of that for you tomorrow. But here's another major anniversary this week. 30 years ago this week, the world watched in shock as the Chinese government cracked down on peaceful protesters in Tiananmen Square. More than one million students and workers who occupied the square for weeks uh, demanding freedom, democracy, and a higher quality of life. The Chinese government responded with tanks and with violence. The official death count still officially unknown, but it's estimated to be anywhere from hundreds to perhaps thousands. If you think about one of the most en enduring images of the Tiananmen Square protests, it's certainly what the protester who came to be known as the Tank Man. This was the protester who approached a column of tanks entering Tiananmen Square, stood in front of those tanks. The tank tried to go around him. He kept standing in front of that those tanks. He eventually crawled up on one of the tanks as well. This was in These were incredible images. That took place on June 5th. 1989, 30 years ago today. Have a listen to this. This is CNN photojournalist Jonathan Scher. This is the guy who shot the the iconic images of that uh, tank man 30 years ago today. Here he is recalling it. We saw the man jump out into the street. I didn't actually see it initially, actually. Another cameraman by the name of Kit Schwartz saw it and he said, hey, look at that guy. So I trained my camera on him and uh, we saw him stand there blocked the tanks and there was some conversation going on. Um, my lens was on its doubler, which means it was very far away. Um, so it was a little bit shaky, as you can see on the, on the film. And what happened was he, the, the tanks tried to go around him and they couldn't. So then they stopped and they thought they would try to scare him away by shooting uh, their rifles or machine guns over his head. Well, over his head, uh, two blocks down, was basically at us. And the bullets were coming by us so so close that we could actually hear them go woo, woo, right over our heads. It was Jonathan Scher talking about the tank man who stood up in front of that column of tanks 30 years ago today. Let's talk now about the Tiananmen Square protest with my guest, Jonathan Manthorpe, foreign correspondent, international affairs columnist. He's the author of the new book, Claws of the Panda, Beijing's Campaign of Influence and Intimidation to Canada in Canada. Jonathan, welcome back to the program. 
Thank you, Mike. Good to be with you. Where were you 30 years ago when the Tiananmen Square protests <laughs> were happening? I was in Africa. Um, mm. And I can tell you, not a lot of news about this uh, seeped through into uh, Zimbabwe, where I was based at the time. But uh, very soon afterwards, I was posted to Asia by Southern News. And I, um, fairly soon after I arrived in Hong Kong, I went up to Beijing and uh, started to get acquainted with what had happened. I remember one of my first mornings there driving down the road past, uh, uh, across the top of Tiananmen Square in front of the uh, the Forbidden City, and the uh, uh, and the, the the cab sort of bumped along the road, and the uh, the cab driver said to me, he said, tanks. And so those were ruts left in the road from the, the where the tanks had gone down a couple of years before. Um, but, yeah, it, uh, they, one of the things that I did on that first trip, I went to the People's Liberation Army Museum, and hanging on the wall there was a map with... Um, uh, uh, red stars on close to 200 cities. I think actually I've done research later, it was 163 cities. Uh, and uh, those were marked because there had been riots and demonstrations in all those cities right across China. And this was a map sort of applauding the PLA for putting down what the Communist Party, of course, saw as a national uprising against the party. Um, and, I, and I think we often forget that, that this was a national uprising. Right. It happened in hundreds of cities or scores of cities across China. Um, and that, of course, was one reason why, in the end, the Communist Party instituted martial law and pulled out the troops to crush it. Okay, 30 years later, what are the what are the people in China being told about this event today? Is it is it is yeah. discussion well, they're of not this being told anything. Nothing. Yeah. Now, yeah. I mean the, the the Tank Man story is interesting uh, Mike because when I first started going to uh, China, uh they, they that image which is now banned was was played quite often on Chinese television and the reason was they said that of course it showed the humanity of the tank drivers that they didn't run over the man. Um, now, we have to remember that the Tiananmen Square was a, a, a really important moment in the relationship between the Chinese people and the People's Liberation Army. Up until that point, of course, Chinese people had been told for decades that you know, the, the army is the people's army. Well, what they learned on that night of June 4th, 5th, uh, June 3rd, 4th, was, of course, that the, the army is not the people's army, it's the Communist Party's army. And so there was been, there's been a really persistent effort over the years to try to rebuild the reputation of the PLA, of the People's Liberation Army, with the Chinese people. And early on, they did use that tank man image uh, to try to show the humanity of the People's Liberation Army. But, of course, it has not failed. It, it failed, and they've... Um, uh, they've stopped it, uh, and they now ban that image. Although, of course, I think uh, uh, everyone in China really knows all about it. Um, I don't know. There was the last few days there was a BBC uh, um, uh, reporter, uh, John Sugworth, who went around Beijing rather bravely, I thought, and sort of started showing the image of the tank man to people and uh, asking if they knew what it was and. Um, you could see that most of them, uh, in their eyes, you'd see in their eyes, most of them knew exactly what it was, although, of course, they, they denied to him that it was of any interest to them at all. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, yeah, uh, now, that's of course, d- despite the efforts of, of the Chinese government to, to suppress the memory of this, is I was reading a, a Guardian newspaper report about how more than 3,200 keywords entered on computers and, and thousands of photos related to the protests and the massacre, massacre are officially censored in China. Yes. Oh, yeah. And I, I think one has to remember also, uh, Mike, that, uh, you know, everybody in China knew about this at the time. They knew what was going on in Beijing. Of course, in many cities, it was going on uh, in their own cities. When I started traveling around, I, I started asking people how many people had been killed in their city at that time. And I, I gathered a whole list of you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of, of people who had been killed as the military uh, moved against uh, demonstrators in uh, in various cities. One has to remember, too, of course, and I've got some interesting stuff in front of me here, um, that the demonstrations went on in other cities, uh, many of them in response to the the massacre in Beijing, for many days afterwards. I've got in front of me here um, some copies of reports that were sent to the Chinese leadership, to Party Central and the State Council. Now, here's just June 5th, which is, you know, 30 years ago today. Shanghai, more than 30,000 students brought downtown traffic to a standstill by using 1,200 motor buses and electric buses as roadblocks. Uh, Tianjin, more than 7,000 students took to the streets. Harbin, uh, nearly 20,000 students erected roadblocks at downtown intersections. Uh, Changchun, more than 10,000 students marched in the rain carrying wreaths. Uh, Taiyun, more than 50,000 students, teachers and residents, had a memorial meeting at Mayfair Square. Xi'an, more than 4,000 students, took to the streets. Uh, Wuhan, more than 20,000 students marched. More than 5,000 of them sat at the entrance to the Wuchang Bridge. Uh, Changsha, more than 20,000 students marched. And this went on for days and days afterwards. It took, uh, it took a long time for uh, the party to get uh, control of the country. So, you know, everyone in China was aware of what had happened in, uh, in, uh, uh, in Tiananmen Square, in large part because it was, you know, it was happening in their cities as well. And, okay. um, the, uh, and the party had to use extreme violence to bring the country back under control. And, uh, uh, you know, the, all, the, all the reasons uh, for the outbreak of the student demonstrations uh, in, in 1989, beginning uh, in March, April, uh, they're all still there. They're all still waiting to break out again, and I'm sure at some point they will. Do you think, just in the last minute and a half we got left here, Jonathan, do you think that we've obviously seen a lot of changes in China? It's a much more prosperous uh, country now, uh, very very wealthy country in, in many ways, a high-tech country. Do you, is there any doubt in your mind that if, if protests like this erupted again, whether the, the Chinese military and the Chinese government would respond in a similar fashion in, in, in putting down protests? No, that I think they again? would they would react in exactly the same way. I mean, we heard the defense minister uh, speaking in Shanghai over the weekend, uh, justifying the crackdown, saying the country was in turmoil and it was absolutely justified. I mean, we've also seen, of course, uh, in the last, since 2012, since Xi Jinping came to power, we've seen uh, the implementation, the creation, the building of perhaps the most sophisticated, high-tech, authoritarian state in the history of the world. Um, I mean, they, they, are, they are using technology in the most uh, almost obscene ways to be able to control a population of 1.3, 1.4 billion people. Uh, they have these vast uh, 
concentration camps in uh, Xinjiang province where they're trying to, quote, re-educate, although brainwash is probably a better word, uh, uh, two or three million of the uh, the local population there. They're uh, still engaged in cultural genocide in, in Tibet. They are trying to uh, very successfully um, uh, destroy freedom of freedom of the judiciary and law in in Hong Kong, and they've got, made no progress on on uh, and will no, make no progress on uh, uh, creating democratic institutions there. And of course, they're getting more and more loud in their um, uh, in, in their threats to invade Taiwan. So uh, this is uh, there, okay. there's been great economic advance, but there's been absolutely no social or political advance at all. Jonathan, it's always a great pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. I appreciate it a lot. That is Jonathan Manthorpe. His terrific book, which I highly recommend to you, Claws of the Panda, Beijing's Campaign of Influence and Intimidation in Canada.